Okay, I want to start by reading a classic Bible passage about the birth of Christ. It's a staple of this season, so I thought, why not go with it to kick off the Advent season? All right, so let's read Luke chapter 2. She, Mary, mother of Jesus, gave birth to her firstborn, a son, Jesus, She wrapped them in cloths and placed them in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Classic, right? You've heard of this? I mean, this is the first time I heard about Jesus as a Korean boy in Korea. Uh, I've never heard about Jesus. My parents were not Christians. Uh, but as a seven-year-old, the school had a little play for seven-year-olds <laughs> acting this scene out. You know, it is such a well-known thing. It is everywhere. You know what I'm talking about? It is just everywhere. This is like 1970s in Korea. You know? And I didn't understand this at all. I was just like, hmm, shepherds, baby. What is that? <laughs> you know? But I want to really talk about this passage today because it's such a well-known passage. It forms like... Uh, it's an image that, that is at the basis of American psyche about Christianity, right? When you think of Christmas, you think of this scene, right? Baby in a manger, you know, with animals, shepherds. Classic. And what I want to really talk about today is this verse. This good news That will cause great joy for all the people. For all the people. Even a seven-year-old Korean boy who had never heard about Jesus before. You know, this, this event that happened 2,000 years ago in a little country in the Middle East. How is that supposed to cause great joy for all the people? Right? Right? I mean, it became a very famous story. But how does it cause joy for all people? I mean, Christmas gifts, yeah, that, that causes joy for all people, right? Gifts do. But does the Christian message cause joy for all the people? Would you say yes or no? What do you think? Do you think people in the Middle East are going, yes, Jesus Christians, they are cause for great joy. Do you think so? No. And there's like a billion people who's not happy about it, right? I mean, that doesn't seem to be, you know, warm, fuzzy, great joy kind of feel towards 
you know, Christian message for all the people. Why is that? You know? He says it's supposed to cause great joy for everyone, all the people. But that doesn't seem to be happening. So, is it possible that the way that the Christian message is understood is not properly understood? Now, is it possible that if it's really properly understood, it will cause great joy for all the people? But it is not, and that's why so many people don't feel happy about Christians and Christian message. Is that possible? What do you think, right? I think that's possible. Because I really believe the Bible. I really believe it's supposed to cause great joy for everyone, not just Christians. So I'd like to take a fresh look at what Advent is supposed to mean, what coming of Christ is supposed to mean, how he's supposed to bring joy to all people. Now, the most common understanding of the Christian message today is that Christ died to pay for our sins so that we can be good before God. It's called the atonement theory of the cross. Many of you are familiar with that, right? So let me just take a brief historical survey of this. Uh, Versions of this theory have been around since the early days of church based on verses like the following. He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So based on these verses, some of the earliest theories about these verses was that a ransom was owed to Satan. Uh, because of our failings, and Jesus paid for it. Uh, it's called the ransom theory, uh, developed uh, most famously by Saint Oregon. Um, don't know. Some of you may have heard of him. Very famous saint, early saint, developed this ransom theory. But then theologians became uncomfortable with it for various reasons, uh, which I will not go into in detail. But just to say, by the Middle Ages. Saint Anselm uh, in 11th century persuasively argued that the debt was owed to God, not Satan. So for the first thousand years of church history, the idea was there was a debt owed to Satan and we were captive to Satan and Jesus paid the debt to free us. That was the dominant theory for the first thousand years. And then in the medieval ages, Saint Anselm objected to that by saying, come on, you know. What do we really owe Satan? And Satan's not that powerful. God is the one who we should pay attention to. You know, we owe a debt of honor to God. And that's what was paid. And that took over. And other Protestant theologians like Calvin developed it further into what's called penal substitution theory, which became the basis of modern understanding of the gospel. By now... It's um, one of its most popular way of understanding this is uh, what's called the four spiritual laws. Have you heard of this? Four spiritual, some of you are chuckling. It's a very, very famous evangelical developed theory. It's a compilation of atonement theory. Uh, There's a picture that kind of captures the four spiritual laws, and that is uh, 
you know, God and man, we got separated because we sinned and God is holy and he's just. So there was a debt owed and Jesus Christ became a bridge by dying on the cross, paid the debt off. So now we are good with God. And that's why it's good news to all people. And believing this is the only way to go to heaven. Familiar with this? Right? I mean, most of us are, I think. It's a very, very famous theory of understanding the gospel. Now, how is this good news? In the medieval age, it struck everyone as good news because everyone was uh, obsessed with, and the whole society was structured around what we owe each other. The feudal society, the basis of how civilization worked was what we owe, especially the liege lord. Lord, And so uh, this idea that we owe that debt to the Lord and Jesus paid that debt, it, it really struck everyone as good news. It made intuitive sense to everyone. Um, now, we're not so concerned about debt anymore, right? I mean, look at the national debt. <laughs> unbelievable how unconcerned we are about debt. Everyone has credit card debt, right? I mean, I think average American owns like, owes like $10,000 on credit cards. I mean, it's just not a big deal. You know, Trump bankrupted four times, the president. You know, it just it doesn't really matter. But still, this understanding of the gospel is very useful still. How it's used today practically is that the cross is used like a reset button. That's how it's really used uh, to make the covenant with God work. You know, the covenant with God, the contract is that we obey God's rules and God blesses us. But we all mess up. And that's why we have a debt to God, right? So, then the cross comes in. We mess up all the time. We all agree to that. But if we are sorry, if we're willing to say, you know, I'm sorry, face up to it, and willing to work on our problems, then the cross works like a reset button. You press the cross, Right? And, and it takes various forms, right? In the Catholic Church, you may have to say the Hail Mary ten times. You may have to go to the confessional. In the evangelical world, you have, may have to confess your sins to a men's group. Right? You have these, uh, uh, you know, all these, you know, promise keepers. Remember that? That was a huge thing, right? You made the promise. You have to keep the promise. Well, of course, you don't keep the promise. So, so, so how it works is you, you go to each other and you say, I'm sorry, I, I made this mistake. And then uh, one gets waved over you. You know, Jesus Christ died for you. You are forgiven. You know, it's over. You, 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 your, your slate is wiped clean. So you can go and work on your problems again. Right? It's a reset button. And it's infinite. You can just press that again and again and again. Whenever you mess up, to make the covenant with God work. Because we always mess up. Wouldn't we agree? None of us can measure up to God's standards, so we are always falling short. So to make the covenant work, we need this reset button. Because you're always, it's like the Sisyphus, right? You're always keep it, kept getting the rock you know, up, you mess up, 
press the button, you keep going, right? It's very, very useful. It's really the only way to make the covenant with God work. And this will work for lots of people, not for everyone. But when a large group of people, when hundreds of millions of people, keep trying to improve themselves with a reset button, right? It gives them great power to never give up, right? I mean, you don't, you don't have to despair ever again. You just keep, if you're sorry, willing to work on it, you just keep pressing the reset button. You just keep, if you're alcoholic, you know, you just keep going at it. You try to improve yourself. You know, whatever flaw you find in yourself, you keep improving. You know, for lots of people, that will lead to lots of success, wealth, and achievements. Wouldn't you agree? You know, if a large group of people are keep trying to do this, some portion of them is going to see a lot of improvements. It leads to societies doing really well. And this explains why the evangelical worldview or the Republican worldview is so focused on taking responsibility for your life. It's on us to get better. God already gave us the reset button, so you can just keep trying. Have you heard this phrase, God helps those who help themselves? I mean, a lot of people believe that that's from the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. It's not from the Bible. That's Benjamin Franklin. Okay? That, that cap, that's, that's pure bedrock, Puritan, evangelical American narrative. This is what America is built on. It's the Wild West. It's the land of opportunity. It's on you. God helps those who help themselves. Keep trying. Keep pushing the reset button and keep going. Well, the negative side of this is, of course, it can make an idol out of success. Because the proof of your moral character is that you're willing to say you're sorry and you keep trying. And as long as you do that, God will bless you. That's the covenant with God. So unless God is false, He will bless you. Right? So the proof that you are blessed, you know, proof you are accepted by God is your success. Right? There's no way you cannot be successful. Because if you just keep willing to reset and go and try, God is going to bless you with success. And so success becomes the proof of your moral character. That's why prosperity gospel is so popular in America. It just goes hand in hand. You know, God, God's blessing is on you. That's the proof that you are willing to keep trying. You know, you are willing to use the cross and keep going. And there's no way to fail. It's foolproof. It'll happen. You get what I mean? So, the mission of Christian discipleship becomes all about learning the right rules, right secrets. You know, like the secret, you know, just get the right doctrines in your head and keep trying and try to behave well and then you get blessed. And blessings are the proof that you've been doing right. Right? That's how it all works. And that will work for lots of people. It does. It will. That's just how the, the reality is set up. 
if you just keep trying, a lot of times success comes your way. But the cost is lots of other people will feel like failures. <laughs> Because let's face it, life doesn't work out for everyone. Things happen, people. Even if you do everything you can, and you have tried and tried and did, believe the right things and behave the right way, and you go at it, accidents happen. Bad things happen to good people. Cancer will not discriminate whether you believe the Bible or not. It will come to you randomly. You know? I mean, some of the best people I've known, pastors, have gotten cancers. You know? Things like that happen. So then, what does that mean? If you really believed all this, then lots of us will feel bad about ourselves because not only are we failing and suffering from hardships of life, it also means we are rejected by God. We're not blessed. We're not protected. God has abandoned you. So you must have done something wrong. You're punished. So not only have you failed in life, you have failed as a person, as a Christian, as a soul. Wow, that's a heavy burden, right? Isn't it? I mean, not only you have health problems, you now think your moral character falls short as well. My God, that's hard. Have you ever had such thoughts though? When things don't go well, have you ever had thought, maybe I'm being punished? I have. Right? What have I done wrong? Maybe if I just did everything right, I wouldn't be in this situation. It's such a common thought. That's what we believe. That's very bad. That's a heavy burden. So the genius of American Christian narrative is the ability to reinvent yourself and just keep going at it. It won't work for everyone. And even if you succeed at being blessed and being successful, those of us who succeed, somewhere deep inside, we will feel like a fake. You know, like the main character of Mad Men. Have you ever seen Don Draper? You know, this guy reinvents himself, but deep inside, he knows he's a fake. That's a true American narrative. That represents, you know, everyone who bought the American narrative. Because none of us can keep the covenant with God. Every single one of us knows we have fallen short of the standards that God has set. God himself says so in the Bible. That none of us, can, none of you can do it. It will never measure up. So deep inside, we know we don't deserve the blessings we have. So we'll feel like a fake, knowing that we don't deserve it. So as much as I appreciate the work of theologians like St. Anselm and Calvin and, and, and appreciate the genius of American capitalism and its narratives, I am uncomfortable with how it's understood and applied today as the gospel. as the message of Christ. Because it's not good news for everyone. It's bad news for a lot of people, if you understand it like that. Because first, the Bible makes a big deal about how Christ was sacrificed once. You know, that's part of the, the verses we read today. He, 
the Bible makes a big deal about how you cannot crucify Christ again and again. It's been done once, finished. It's not a reset button. It cannot be used again and again. Plus, what today's society thinks of the atonement theory, it doesn't come across as good news. We are no longer in the medieval ages where we are obsessed with what we owe each other. Rather, we are conversant in psychotherapy. I mean, even the people who are not in therapy field, we are at least conversant in its structures and understandings and family dynamics. We're very sensitive now to child abuse, family dynamics. And, and with that understanding in mind, I mean, just re-look at those four spiritual laws with that perspective. So what is it saying? We, as the children of God, we messed up so badly, our father got so angry that our father was going to beat us to death. But instead, our older brother Jesus, he stepped in and he got beat up to death instead. So now we are good with our father. Isn't that great news? Aren't you happy that this happened? Right? Now you look at it from that angle, you just think, oh my God. <laughs> Why in the world do I want to do anything to do with this rageaholic God figure? Well, he can't just keep it in. He has to kill humanity. He has to kill us. That's the only way his wrath. I mean, that's some of the hymns we are singing. We sing about this. On the cross, God's wrath was satisfied, right? And that's the good news? So this, this father, his wrath had to be satisfied by killing his children? What the? How is this good news? How does this bring glory to God? Our first responsibility is to bring glory to God. Is this what we are supposed to preach? That God is like this? That brings glory to God? It just doesn't strike people as good news. It's outrageous. Don't you think? I mean, if you look at it from that way, you just think, how in the world have we ever believed this? That this is supposed to bring glory to God. God's character. You know, some people make fun of this. It's like this cartoon. Have you ever seen this cartoon? Jesus says, let me in. Why? So I can save you. From what? From what I'm going to do to you if you don't let me in. <laughs> right? And so people are like, you know, they're making fun of this now, you know? I mean, it's like they're saying it doesn't make any sense, guys. <laughs> right? How is this salvation? You get me? The gospel is supposed to be good news that will cause great joy for all the people. This was done not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. What does it mean, our sins? Christians, people of faith. So this means Christ is good for not just Christians, but everyone. So what if there's another way to read the cross, the meaning of coming of Christ? What if 
but to propose to you. What if Jesus came to reverse the fall, the original sin? Right? The Bible sets up the original sin as the problem that started everything. You familiar with the original sin? You know, how it's understood today? Traditionally, is Eve did the bad thing. Right? We human beings. She took the forbidden fruit. She got caught with her hand in the cookie jar. Right? That's how we understand that. Right? I mean, I think there's all kinds of paintings around that. I think, you know, it's Eve took this, this good-looking fruit. She's not supposed to take that cookie, you know? So this makes sense to like three-year-olds, right? Cookie jar. Not supposed to touch it. Eve, Eve went in and, and, and she got caught. So now she has to be, we all have to be punished. But Christ somehow paid the penalty and we are good again. And so the focus on all of this is on how we tend to do wrong thing, right? Adam and Eve did the wrong thing. They deserve punishment. And that ignores how the wrong thing Eve did or Adam did is that they ate the knowledge of good and evil. They became, their eyes got open and they became able to judge and distinguish between good and evil. Have you ever wondered why the original sin is the knowledge of good and evil? I mean, if, if the thing, if the focus is on not doing wrong, not doing evil, wouldn't you think the knowledge of good and evil would be actually helpful? Right? Wouldn't you have to know what the good and evil is so you don't do evil? So why is the wrong thing called the knowledge of good and evil? Does that make any sense to you? How we traditionally understand this makes no sense whatsoever. Because the thing is called the knowledge of good and evil. That's what we are not supposed to do. It's all in the text, guys. Just, I'm not making this up. It's been completely misunderstood. Right? Makes no sense. What if the problem isn't so much that Adam and Eve did the wrong thing? What if the problem is that they started applying, judging between good and evil to everything in sight? What if that's the wrong thing they did? That's all in the text, guys. Right? God doesn't come out and say, Adam and Eve, you did a horrible, horrible thing. You did an evil thing. Now you need to be punished. That's not what Genesis 3 says. It says they started judging everything. They Starting with themselves. They judged themselves, then they judged God, and then they judged each other. Right? Just read the text. So what if the atoning sacrifice of the cross was meant to reverse the fall by taking away the power of judgment, of judging between good and evil? To proclaim that God accepts us as worthy and valuable just as we are. No matter who we are, no matter what we have done. That's the oldest Christian dogma, actually. That the cross happened. To say God loves you. That God was willing to die on the cross. That God was willing to give up his own life. Why would he withhold from us? He loves us so much. That 
as we are. Now, it's not about what we have done and who we are. It's about what Christ has done and who He is. You've heard those things, right? So all these dogmas. What if we just believe that? That would make everyone feel better about themselves and about God and about each other. If you just really truly accepted yourself as you are and just thought, I am accepted. It would make things, it would just make you feel better, right? Who would object? Be happy with yourself, be happy with other people, and be happy with God or reality. That's real happiness, don't you think? And that should be good news to everyone. If there is some secret pill that anyone can take, that will make you be happy with yourself, happy with people around you, and happy with your circumstances. I think that would sell. I think it would sell in the Middle East too. I don't think it would just sell among Christians. I think every single human being would be interested in something like this. Right? That would be good news for all people. So, this is my first practical suggestion to, un- to start enjoying the power of the cross and true salvation. Just take it in. All you have to do is believe it. That's why salvation is by faith alone. By believing. What do you believe? Do you really believe you are accepted as you are? You know, if you really believe that, that God would just love you that much, if you really believe that, you start being a lot happier. Take it in. Just believe it. Sounds simple, yeah? But this is surprisingly hard to do. Trust me, I try to do this all the time. It is so freaking hard to believe. So much easier to believe that I'm no good. Because we are angry with ourselves. So much easier to believe God is angry with us. Because of knowledge of good and evil. After all, that is the original sin. We're like crack babies, guys. You know? Original sin runs in our blood. We run to knowledge of good and evil. We judge, starting with ourselves. So much easier to go with traditional views of the cross, to believe we are bad, we're sinners. We deserve punishment. God is angry with us. You've got to believe the right thing and got to do the right thing. That's so much easier to believe in the gospel of the cross. That's not about what you do. It's about what Christ has done. You know, for people of faith, it's supposed to be the Spirit of God who does the work of changing you for the better. Not you. When did we lose sight of that? I mean, Sarah preached this this passage just a couple weeks ago. Romans chapter 8. And now what the law code asked for but we couldn't deliver is accomplished as we, instead of redoubling our own efforts, simply embrace what the Spirit is doing in us. Those who think they can do it on their own end up obsessed with measuring their own moral, moral muscle but never get around to exercising it in real life. Those who trust God's action in them find that God's Spirit is in them, living and breathing God. The cross should not be used as a reset button to redouble our own efforts to get better and better and better. That is what is being condemned in this passage, isn't it? That is what is being called anti-Christ. That will never work. It is saying simply accept 
the message, then the, you will find that God's Spirit in you will do the work of changing you for the better. It's not you. It's, what, it's Christ and what God does in you. It is done. It is finished. We just need to believe it. Take it in and live like it to experience the power of it. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying there's no good and evil. Of course there is. There is good and evil. But it's the compulsions that lead to evil. It's the toxic judging, rejection of self and others that lead to evil. I mean, look at all the horrific evil in history. The ethnic cleansings, the Holocaust, the, the revolutionary blood that gets shed, the killing fields of Cambodia. They are caused by toxic judging that categorized groups of people as being the lesser or the insignificant or the evildoers who deserve to be punished. Right? I mean, if we accepted ourselves as just as we are, that means all people need to be accepted just as they are. We have no right to harm anyone else. If we really believe that we are worthy of the dignity and respect of a human being, then all people are. Then you cannot harm others because they are worthy of being accepted just as they are. No matter what they have done, you cannot harm them. That's what will lead to good behavior, that belief. We won't do evil. This gives us a mission in life. If there's anything in us that divides and categorizes people as worthy or unworthy, lesser or greater, loved or rejected, that will negate the power of faith in you. And it can apply to anything. To gender, sexual orientation, race. That gets done over and over in history. Racism, misogyny, prejudices, categorization of people according to status, race, and gender so that you can do something bad to them. Even mafia people. They will say things like, I'm not a rat. I killed that, that guy because he was a rat. I'm a good person. Right? So it's that, that, that something in the mentality that characterizes some people as not deserving that allows you to harm them. Do you see? You've got to work against this. These are powerful forces of evil at work even today. They're not gone. All that slavery, you know, the black people, they were children of Ham, they were cursed by God so we can enslave them and kill them. All that's all Bible arguments. Do you know that? It's just so powerful. Discriminating is so attractive and popular because it's the original sin. And the sad fact, I'm going to call church out here. The sad fact is that the church is often a very strong force in, in, in discriminating and feeding people knowledge of good and evil. Church often does this. Renowned Bible teachers are often the voices for discrimination. For example, women in leadership. This is, this is actually going on right now, guys. The, the biggest controversy in the Christian world right now is what John MacArthur just said very recently. He's a renowned Bible teacher. 
Christianity Today is a, is a, is a New York Times of a Christian world. It called John MacArthur one of the most influential Bible teachers of our time. He's written 150, over 150 books on the Bible. He has his own version of the Bible. He's a chancellor of a Christian university. He's a big deal. Not some fringe preacher, okay? Right? And I'm going to quote him. And this is a quote. Every word I'm about to say to you is a quote from him. He just recently said, okay? He said, Empowering women makes men weak. I just let the jaws drop for a moment. And weak men make everybody vulnerable to danger. When women take over a culture, men become weak. When men become weak, they can be conquered. When all the men have been slaughtered, you women can sit there with all your jewelry and junk. You've been conquered because you overpowered your protectors. Don't misunderstand this. This is what we are living in today in America. If women are in charge, we are in trouble. And if you look carefully at our nation, you would have to agree that it's childish, young, inexperienced, ignorant women who are ascending into power. When you overthrow the divine order, which is men are supposed to be in charge, that's what he's saying, the results are always disastrous. And again, it's not anti-women any more than it's anti-children. So he's saying, you know, if you put children in charge, you are in trouble, just like you put women in charge. That's not being anti-children, you know. But it's a divine judgment on a nation that its young and its women are in power. Wow, right? Wow, wow, wow. Can you believe it? So men have to disempower women to be strong. If women are in charge, the results are always disastrous. That's a quote. It always leads to disaster. That is not based on any real history. Let me put it to you. Who do you think was better, Queen Elizabeth or King Henry VIII? <laughs> I, I mean, Queen Elizabeth laid the foundation for British Empire, right? A very great queen. Okay, how about Catherine the Great or Ivan the Terrible? I think the names kind of <laughs> gives that one away, right? One is actually, you know, her name, Molly, they call, it, call her Catherine the Great, And the other one, Ivan the Terrible, around the same time. You know, how about Queen Victoria or Mad King George? Okay? Now, now I'm not saying every woman ruler were great. But by and large, women rulers have been pretty dang good. You know? Right? I mean, who was a disaster and who was great? It's just staggering, the ignorance and the prejudice. It's just a staggering display of ignorance and prejudice, right? Not based on any observation. So what is he basing it on? He's basing it on Bible verses. He says the Bible teaches that women should submit to men. And Bible does have verses like that. And he follows that up with, you know, reason behind that. Why should women submit to men? Eve got out from the protection of Adam, he says. She was vulnerable. She was deceived. Adam was not deceived. Adam sinned because he couldn't live without her. She had become everything to him. So the biblical reason is, 
Eve was, was actually deceived. Adam, he fell because he was not deceived, but Eve had become everything to him. So for her sake, he fell with her. So he's like a better moral character. So Adam deserves to lead. That's the biblical interpretation here. That, I would say, is a pure speculation, despite his renowned reputation as a Bible teacher. I mean, at the very scene of the fall, what the text says is that Adam says, the woman you put here with me, she caused every trouble. Now, does that sound like Eve had become everything to him? Or is he throwing her under the bus? Right? I mean, does it sound like Eve is so precious to him? Or does that sound like the Bible teachers who are blaming everything on the woman? Right? These Bible teachers are following Adam's lead. You know, just blame it on women. And that's very popular. There's this great fear about angering God by not taking every Bible verse and applying it literally. There is a Bible verse. Women should submit to men. And so, if we don't do this, you're going to go to hell. So people like John MacArthur get great renown for teaching this. But if we use that, Bible clearly states that slaves must obey their masters even when you're being cruelly treated. If we did that, we would be condoning and supporting human trafficking right now. Right? If we use the same method, We should be right now supporting human trafficking and slavery and cruel treatment of other human beings. Why are we not doing that? In fact, Christians did exactly that until just a couple of centuries ago. For 1800 years, Christians supported slavery. Southern Baptist as a denomination was created to support slavery. Did you know that? To support the Bible. We repented. We realized there is no man or woman in Christ Jesus, free or slave in Christ Jesus. All human beings are worthy of dignity and respect because Christ died on the cross. Because the original sin is knowledge of good and evil. If you read the Bible through the original sin and focus it on right and wrong, good and evil, you have to obey every single thing here or we are going to hell. If you have that kind of mentality, that will lead to hell. That will lead to your personal hell and it will lead the world into hell. That is what the Bible teaches. That is why the Bible is such a profound book of God. It is not so simple. You know what I'm saying? It's called knowledge of good and evil for a reason. So we got to fight this, guys. You know, just a hundred years ago, women could not vote. Women could not own property because they were considered children. It's not that long ago, guys. This discrimination business is very powerful. Just in the 60s, black people could not marry white people in the state of New York by law. Discrimination? Very popular, guys. We have to fight this. This is a mission on every Christian. Take this message in. You are loved as you are, who you are, no matter who you are, no matter what you've done. And all people 
are worthy of same treatment. If you don't believe that, then you cannot believe it for yourself. There are contradictory beliefs. If you don't fight for everyone's rights, then you cannot call yourself a Christian because you have not believed you are accepted as you are. Does that make sense to you? This is the gospel. This is good news for all people that everyone should welcome. This is the mission in your life. Fight judging. Fight discriminations. Fight degradations everywhere. Speak up at work, at home. Try to accept yourself and others every time you are tempted to reject. Fight every behavior, every word that puts people down. Then power of salvation will be at work in you. You will experience heaven in your life. You will become happier with yourself, people around you, and the world. And that is salvation. Starts now into eternity. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have come to break us from the bondage of knowledge of good and evil. My God, my God, what could have freed us from this bondage? It's such a deep bondage that we judge ourselves and others and our lives. What good news that you have freed us. Help us to live in the grace and love of the cross every day. For every day we fall back to knowledge of good and evil. And we become so unhappy by seeing the flaws in ourselves and others and the world. We become so miserable. Save us, O God. Bring us out of this hell. Live, help us live in the grace and love towards ourselves first and everywhere else. Make us lovely people, heavenly people, happy people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.